We're continuing in our message, our series of messages from the Gospel of John, and we're in this second half of the Gospel where there's this emphasis on abiding in Christ, abiding in Jesus, and He in us. And really, um, that's, that's kind of a, 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 an important uh, summary of our relationship with God right now, right? Uh, we abide in Jesus, he abides in us, but how does that happen for the disciples? You know, they walked with Jesus, they talked with him, they sat at his feet, they listened to him, they were discipled by him directly. That, that's not an option for us. And as Jesus, we enter into the second half of the Gospel of John, Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit and he uses a lot of different terms to describe the Holy Spirit and he talks a lot about about how the Holy Spirit is going to be working in our lives and how he's going to be working in the world now that Jesus isn't here preaching and healing and doing the things he was doing. Uh, so I, I think uh, Jesus had a lot to unpack for his disciples and to unpack for us about what it looks like to live this life where we are abiding in him in his spirit and he is abiding in us. So I've titled the message today, Life in the Spirit. And we're in John chapter 16. We're going to be finishing up verse 4 and going on to verse 15. And let's see what Jesus had to, to say about this life in the Spirit. Beginning in the second half of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to the one who sent me. And none of you is asking me, where are you going? Rather, because I have said these things to you, grief has filled your heart. Obviously, if Jesus begins here saying, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, we need to refer back to the, the passage immediately before this. And if you remember, in, that pa in the last passage we looked at from John, Jesus was warning his disciples that because they love him and have defected from a world in rebellion against its creator and sold to slavery and to sin, because they have defected from the world and had turned their allegiance and hearts to God, now the world is going to hate them. And he lets them know it's not you they hate, it's me they hate. But because you no longer belong to the world, you belong to me now, now the world will focus its attention and its hatred on you. And he tries to warn them because uh, he doesn't want this to come to them as a surprise. And sometimes that shocks us, right, as followers of Jesus when all we're doing is uh, sharing life and truth and lovingly reaching out to those around us, that so often we are, we are treated with such contempt in response. We, we wonder, why? Uh, why would anybody uh, respond that way to uh, somebody who comes to you in love? And Jesus is helping us understand that uh, the world is in rebellion against God, and when we abandon that revolt... When we defect from the world and join Christ, the world then sees us as the enemy. So that's what he's talking about when he says, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Now, in the beginning, uh, when Jesus was there f physically, he was preaching and teaching and challenging the status quo, even of the religious elite, challenging hypocrisy and calling people to genuine faith in God, not just this make-believe of going through rituals and pretending in front of others and impressing other human beings, but genuinely from the heart, 
turning to God. Jesus challenged people and he became kind of the lightning rod for the world's hatred when he was there physically and uh, the disciples were somewhat shielded but he says I'm uh, that's why I didn't bother to warn you about this ahead of time but now that I'm going to not be here you are going to be the the focus of the world and its hatred of God and uh, you need to be prepared for that and then, then he, he talks about uh, what he's about to accomplish. I am going to the one who sent me. He said all along that the Father, God the Father, has sent him into the world with a specific mission for the world to rescue creation from sin and death. And uh, he has been sent to this earth to accomplish that. And he says, I'm about to go back to the one who sent me. Which means... That he is about to accomplish everything the Father sent him here to accomplish. He's about to finish the job he was given to do. And having concluded it, he will return to the Father. He says, but none of you is asking, where are you going? None of you is interested at all in what I'm about to accomplish, what I'm up to, what I'm doing. Why? Because I've said these things to you, grief has filled your heart. They had left everything to follow Jesus. And when Jesus said, I'm going away, you will see me no more. Then you'll see me briefly, but I'm going to be gone. When he says that to them, all of a sudden, that becomes the only thing they can think about. I've left everything to follow you, Jesus. What do you mean you're leaving? I can't do this without you. And that will become very evident in the next few hours that they can't do anything without Jesus there to strengthen them. Uh, the minute he's arrested, they're all going to scatter. Peter's going to deny three times he even knows Jesus. They are powerless without Jesus. And this has filled their hearts with grief. They feel abandoned. And uh, their whole world seems like it's falling apart on them so they cannot get past what they are about to experience the departure of Jesus and Jesus gently reminds them that there's a bigger picture here I came into this world from a position outside of creation itself you know, this whole cosmos, this whole creation, everything that exists is under the power of sin and death. I came from someplace other than that, someplace untouched by sin, untainted by that. From beyond, I came into this cosmos. And I came in to redeem, to defeat sin and death and to rescue creation from its power. And when I accomplish that, I am returning to the Father who sent me. Which means that they are on the verge of the single most significant event in the history of creation. They are hours from this being consummated. Jesus is about to break creation wide open. 
He is about to break free creation from a bondage it has suffered for millennia and make possible the eternal rescue of human souls and make possible the remaking of creation so that in all of creation there is nothing that is not exactly as it should be. There is no wrong in existence. He's come to accomplish this grand scheme that God has been working for since Adam and Eve. He's been working it out. And we've come to the point where it's happening. And Jesus says, why aren't you guys asking me about this? Don't you realize the significance of this moment? Why aren't you paying attention to what's happening, what God is up to? Have you ever thought about that? We're here at this most glorious moment in God's activity on earth. It's about to happen. And the disciples can only think of their own sadness because Jesus is leaving. Think of your own life. How have you missed out on great things God was doing because you were too focused on this world, on your life? Let's keep reading verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And once he has come, he will convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. So Jesus knows they're sad at the news of his departure, but he tells them, guys, it's better for you if I go away. It is to your advantage for me to go away. I am sure that they thought that was impossible. You may have thought that. You may have thought, why did I have to be born now? Why couldn't I have been born in Jerusalem or uh, Capernaum back in the first century? Why couldn't I have been one of those who got to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him talk? Listen to the Sermon on the Mount as it was being preached. See the leper healed. See the amazing things he did. Why did I miss out on all of that? It would have been better than what I have. Let me ask you this. Think a moment about the experience of the disciples who had both. The disciples who sat at Jesus' feet, saw him with their own physical eyes and heard him with their physical ears and watched him do miraculous, amazing things. Watched him walk on water. Multiply food miraculously. Do things that are absolutely humanly impossible. How effective were they in the time before Jesus ascended to the Father? 
Now, there was a brief period he sent them out uh, to heal the sick and preach, and they, they had a, a brief moment of great success. But overall, if you read the Gospels, you'll realize that the disciples were constantly fumbling and never seemed to understand a thing. Jesus, he was speaking clearly with words. It wasn't some impression on their spirit. He was using real words, but they still didn't get it. Most of the time, the disciples and those who wrote the Gospels are telling us honestly, man, we didn't understand what he was talking about at the moment. You think, oh, God would have spoken much more clearly that way. I would have understood much better if Jesus just used words. Well, they had that experience and they never seemed to get it. They were constantly at odds with Jesus and bickering and fighting and arguing over stuff. He kept trying to tell them that's not what it's all about. They were mediocre at best. Now compare these disciples after Jesus returns to the Father. That same Peter who before denied Jesus three times all of a sudden, he's standing before the Sanhedrin that put Jesus on that cross and tells them, you guys killed the author of life. You need to repent. Where did that come from? Where did that clarity and that power come from? And they spent the rest of their lives on mission and the world was turned upside down. So, Jesus is absolutely right. You're better off if I go and we do it this way. Don't ever feel like you got cheated of something because you get to live in the age of the Spirit. We're better off. He says, if I don't go away, and this is the divine plan, the Father sends the Son to earth to die on the cross and redeem creation from sin and death, defeat all the powers of sin and death, rise victorious and inherit the kingdom, which is all that exists. Purchase it with his blood, and now it belongs to him by rights, and he rises as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He does all of that. And then he and the Father send the Holy Spirit to continue the work on earth. The advocate, the one, the paraclete, right? The one who stands beside. If I don't go away, I can't send him to you. This is the order of things. This is the way, this is the, way the divine plan has been laid out. We will send the Spirit once the redemption is accomplished. But if I go, I will send him to you. Once he's come, he will convict the world. That word in the Greek, convict, carries the idea of persuading, not just persuading, convincing somebody that they are in the wrong about something. Making them uh, recognize and understand perfectly well and admit that they are wrong about a thing. Convict. And some think that we should read this in a, uh, a courtroom sense, that Jesus is condemning the unbelieving world. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. I think it's the idea of uh, convincing the world of truth where they have been deceived. 
Which is why in John, Jesus is always talking about the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. So he's going to convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. He's continuing on something he told them in the passage we were looking at previously. In chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, he says, When the Advocate should come, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, that one will bear witness about me. And you also are bearing witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. He's continuing to talk about this idea of us bearing witness and doing so in partnership with the Holy Spirit of God. So as we are sharing about Jesus, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, convincing the world of some basic, absolutely fundamental truths it needs to come to uh, recognize before the gospel message can take purchase in their hearts. We get to be partners with God in this witness task. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit is going to partner with us as we share about him in a lost world. How have you experienced this partnership as you bear witness? And Jesus is going to explain the next three verses what, what it is that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world about. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So why does the world need to be convinced that they are wrong about sin? Well, the reason Jesus gives is they don't believe in me. In other words, Jesus is saying the reason they don't believe in me is that they are wrong about sin. They have misunderstood something about sin. As I look at the world around me, I think if I were to just throw this up on Facebook and say, uh, explain sin to me. I think one of the prevailing responses I would get from people in our world is uh, you're using a, a word that no longer has any meaning. There's no such thing as sin. Sin is just your parents being oppressive to you. Sin is religion ruining your life. Sin is the way people in power manipulate you to control you. But there's really no such thing as sin. We're not sinners. Everyone should do whatever they want. Follow your heart. That is the adage of this age. I think we live in a world that has convinced itself that it has no problem. And perhaps there is such a thing as sin, such a thing as wicked or evil, uh, you know, and it, it's never you, it's always, you know, the homophobe or there's always somebody out there, you know, the, the right-wing extremist or the left-wing extremist or it's always somebody out there. Very few people in this world think they have a problem. What happens when people don't think that they have a problem, then they don't trust in a savior. Who looks for a savior if you think you're fine as you are? Who needs Jesus if you're just fine the way you are? 
You don't need any help. You don't need any change. You don't need anything different. You're just fine. That's why the Holy Spirit works in the world to convince us of sin. If you have come to faith in Jesus, at some point along the road, the Holy Spirit whispered to your soul, you are broken. You are unworthy of life. And you are headed for utter ruin. We try to tell ourselves that's not happening. We, we compare ourselves not to God and his perfect righteousness. We compare ourselves to each other. And since we're all muddy and filthy and dirty, we can say, well, I'm pretty good. I'm doing great. I'm so much better than all those guys. And we're careful to never compare ourselves to somebody more virtuous than us. Certainly not to God himself. And we lower the standard to where it accommodates what we think we are. And then all of a sudden, ha, sin's not a problem. Well, the Holy Spirit convinces the world that we have lied to ourselves about sin. That we truly are broken. Not just broken. That we are guilty. That we have defiantly turned against our Creator and said, God, I don't care what you say. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. And I am going to rise up and be my own God. And I will be the despot of this soul you placed in me. And we have defied our creator. And we have done a million petty and selfish and shameful things. And the Holy Spirit helps us stop lying to ourselves. And admit the actual truth. I am a sinner. That's necessary before anybody is going to put their faith in Jesus. What correlation do you think there is in the people around you who don't believe in Jesus between their unbelief and their appraisal of their own sin? Keep reading, verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, why does the world need to be corrected in its understanding of righteousness? Well, I would say a couple of things. First off, uh, and many, many people in the world would say there's no such thing as righteousness. There's no such thing as the right. I'm not talking politically. I'm talking categorically, ethically, morally, uh, as an evaluation of something, as right or wrong. Uh, we live in a culture today that, that wants to say there's no such thing as right because they don't want to say there's such a thing as wrong. And we, we live in a world that has given up on righteousness. Good enough. That's the motto of our world, right? Good enough. And many people are absolutely cynical. Many people have grown up, they have never been exposed to righteousness, and they assume that that is a fairy tale, that that is a pipe dream, that is some fantasy. But there's no way to have access to righteousness. The Apostle Paul described 
the gospel as the means by which the righteousness of God is revealed, unveiled, made visible, out of faith and into faith. The Holy Spirit doesn't just show up and say, you're a worm, you're a sinner, you're worthless, you do not deserve anything. You deserve death. All of that is true, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of that truth, but that is not all the Holy Spirit wants to tell us. He wants to tell us that there is such a thing as righteousness. Not only that it exists, not only that there is a righteous God who has never in eternity done anything wrong, who is never in any aspect of who he is wrong in any way. Everything is perfectly, gloriously good. And this is not fantasy. It is the very reality. Existence is constructed upon. That is who God is. We may think because we've not been exposed to it that it doesn't exist. We may try to convince ourselves that that's a fantasy, that we should never aspire to anything as ridiculous as righteousness. The Holy Spirit shows up and says, guess what? Not only does it exist, but Jesus died on a cross to make it possible for you to be made righteous. You yourself can be completely restored made something you've never even seen. If God doesn't convince us of this, we're never going to believe it. It's too good to be true. It's impossible. We want to say there's no such thing as righteousness. And why does the Holy Spirit have to do this now? Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. You see, when Jesus was here, it was the first moment in human history that on this earth there was a human being who was perfectly righteous. You want evidence that there is such a thing as righteousness in the days of Jesus' ministry on earth? All you had to do was open your eyes and look at him. And it was right there in front of us. John described it this way in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel. And the message became flesh and pitched his tent among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus was here, righteousness invaded this sin-dominated world and showed the world that there is such a thing as righteousness. Now that Jesus returns to the Father, the Spirit is at work in the world, convincing the world that righteousness is not a pipe dream, that it can be given to us if we will receive the gospel. Why do you think the world needs to know that there is such a thing as perfectly right? Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Why the third thing? Well, 
Suppose the Holy Spirit convicts you and convinces you that you're wrong about sin. Guess what? Oh, I am a sinner. I'm not good. And suppose the Holy Spirit convicts you and convinces you that God is perfectly righteous and that what he extends to you, the offer he extends to you in Jesus, is to be made righteous in him. Suppose you understand all of that and say, but guess what? I actually like sin. I'm comfortable. I enjoy the things I do. I like being selfish and cruel and petty and the comforts I have built around myself by being so self-centered. I love that and I don't want to give that up. I'm going to cling to this because maybe it'll work out for me. Maybe by clinging to this, uh, if there are enough of us doing this, we get to beat God and we get to make eternity the way I want it to be. Maybe I can dictate what eternity is going to be. We're that deluded, by the way. We human beings today actually think that we can tell God who he has to be based on our internal criteria. That we can say the world has to be the way I internally determine that it has to be. That I have the power to somehow, by the sheer force of stubborn will, to shape reality, to accommodate my whim. People think that. You just got to believe. Believe it and you can do it. No! You're not God. You can't just do anything you want to do just because you want to do it. You don't have that power. But if we believe that, if we believe that we can thumb our nose at God, reject his righteousness, ignore our sin, and we'll still be okay, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in with the third thing he needs to convict us about. This war against God has already been fought and your side lost. The ruler of this world, Satan, the guy who seems, because we've all sold ourselves to slavery under sin, he seems to have all the power in this world. This uh, guy who seems so powerful and it seems like he governs everything across the world and we convince ourselves that if we're with the majority, we're okay. He has already lost. God has already judged him and condemned him. The final judgment is not the moment when we see how it all plays out. That's already happened. The final judgment is just when the sentencing happens. But it's already all taken care of. There is no doubt that sin has lost. And that sin, even though right now it may seem to run the world... And to have all the power and to control all the means of communication and media and political power and authority. And to have the, the, the megaphone of the world in its hands. Sin has lost. And it's not going to win ever. The Holy Spirit helps us recognize the reality of that. Because we are so self-deluded, we would try to convince ourselves that we can still thumb our nose at God and come out okay in the end. We can trample and despise the sacrifice of the Son on the cross to bear our sins. 
and we'll be okay. The Spirit steps in and says, no, you're not. This is the mirage. This is the fairy tale, what we're living in now, because this is already uh, on its way out. It's not going to be around long. It's taken care of. Why do you think the world needs to know that sin and evil have already been defeated and judged eternally? Let's finish verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you are unable to bear them now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak from himself, but will speak whatever he hears and will announce to you (coughs) the things that are coming. He will glorify me because he will receive from what is mine and will announce it to you. Everything, whatever the Father has, is mine. (coughs) Sorry. That is why I said that he will receive from what is mine and will announce it to you. So the Holy Spirit is working in the world as we are bearing witness and sharing the gospel. He is convincing the world of the things they need to be uh, corrected about before they can even receive the gospel. As long as we're deluded on the points of sin and righteousness and judgment, we're never going to come to receive the gospel. We have to understand those three truths before we can receive the message. So the Holy Spirit is at work alongside us, convincing the world so that when we preach the message that seems initially madness, the human soul is able to open up to it and receive it. But that's not all the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. He's also working internally in us. Jesus says, I have so much more to tell you, but you're... You're not ready. And the next few hours are going to make that painfully evident. He's just warned them the world's going to hate you. It's going to be difficult for you. Uh, But within hours, they're going to scatter. Peter's going to deny three times he even knows Jesus. They're going to be gone. They're not about ready to face imprisonment and floggings and death by torture for Jesus and for his mission. But he's going to get them there. He's going to get them there. And not not only that, there are things he needs to communicate to them. He's begun to do so, but he needs to finish out the communication of these things. He's already told them that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Uh, But before the end of the first century, John himself, God will inspire him to write the book of Revelation. And he will warn the Christians at the end of the first century that the persecutions they are facing right then are not going to, they're not going to lessen. It's going to continue for some time. And it turns out historically, that was absolutely true. The church suffered, the first 300 years of the church, they were persecuted severely and martyrdom became the, the hallmark of Christian faith. Till we get to Constantine and things change somewhat. 
Jesus, by his spirit, prepared the church for everything it needed to know and has given us in the inspiration of the New Testament all the information we need. He used the Apostle Paul to flesh out things like resurrection. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, he gives us specific information about physical resurrection and being transformed into glory that is fit for eternity. All these things Jesus had yet to communicate and would do so as the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the New Testament. But not only that, the, the Holy Spirit continues to do that in everyone who believes in Jesus. We're no longer writing sacred scripture. That has been concluded a long time ago. But the Spirit continues to guide us into all truth. And Jesus uh, is careful to keep the Trinity completely intertwined. We might think, okay, so Jesus is gone, now the Spirit's taken over, how's this guy going to do it? And that's the wrong way to think about it. It's the same God. So it's not like the Spirit is just making up something new to tell you. He's actually, and he uses the same language Jesus has used to describe his own ministry. I don't tell you what I want to tell you. I tell you what I'm hearing from the Father. Well, the Spirit's going to do the same thing. He's not going to just say whatever he wants to say. He's going to say what he has heard from me and from the Father. He will receive from me and share that with you. So what all, when we say he's going to guide us into all truth, what's the scope of what that entails? What areas of goodness is, is God throwing into the mix there in terms of where the Holy Spirit can guide us? Jesus says everything. Whatever the Father has, it's mine. So that's what I'm telling you. The Holy Spirit is going to take from mine and announce it to you. And basically he's saying there's no ceiling, there's no limit to what the Holy Spirit is bringing into your lives. It's, it's the fullness of God. That's what he's guiding you into. So this journey of being guided into truth, I think, is an eternal journey. We're never going to hit the ceiling of it. Up until now, Jesus in the flesh has been their rabbi, and he has discipled them. Now he is handing over that task to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be their rabbi. And he will disciple them. He will guide them. That is how we live our life in Christ. We are abiding in him and he in us by his Holy Spirit who abides in us. And we abide in him as we remain close to him in our hearts and minds and are constantly in communion with him in every facet of our living, and he is discipling us and guiding us into the fullness of all truth. Now that Jesus has returned to the Father, the Holy Spirit takes over our life of discipleship. How is the Holy Spirit sharing with you from Jesus and guiding you into all truth? Jesus 
has called us to join him in this grand project of the rescue of the cosmos. He doesn't send us out alone. He's placed the advocate, the Holy Spirit, right by our side. And as we share the gospel, this message of reconciliation with God and the rest of creation through renouncing sin, accepting the forgiveness of Jesus, and living eternal life in him, as we're doing all of this, the Holy Spirit is hard at work convicting the world that there is such a thing as sin and that it's a problem, that there is such a thing as righteousness and that it has been granted to us in Christ. That there is no point that it is absolutely futile to defy God. All the while, the Spirit is at work in our lives, we who have believed in Jesus, to guide us as his disciples in a journey into all truth. Is there any better way to live the human life than this? We're going to sing a song of response. And this is your time in the service to do something about what you've heard from God's Word. If you have not trusted in Jesus and the Holy Spirit has convicted you this morning that you are a sinner and you're desperately in, in need of a Savior, that Jesus is the Savior you need and that He is the only way you can re re be restored to righteousness and that uh, you do not want to continue in this defiance of God that has already been defeated. <coughs> you want to turn to him in faith and live. If that's you this morning, I want you to come forward during this time and talk to the people who are going to be here at front on either side. If, actually, if y'all will come up now and stand. <coughs> you can come to either side and uh, just share with them. Let them pray with you and help you to take a first step into this relationship with Jesus. Maybe you already know him, and Jesus has reminded you that your focus has not been where it needs to be, and you have not been uh, surrendering to this work that his spirit is trying to do in you. You have not been abiding in him, and he in you the way it needs to be happening, and you want to repent of that and ask him to do his work in you. Uh, if that's you this morning, come and share. And these are brothers and sisters just like you and me. They're just here to encourage you and partner with you and pray with you. Maybe you uh, just want somebody to pray with you or for you about something. They will also be doing that. And maybe you just need to talk to God and you want to come and kneel here at the altar at the front. That's open as well. Feel free. to. This is your time to respond to God's word in any way you feel he's leading you to. Uh, come while we sing.